1: University. University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today on the program, I'm talking with Andy Bragan about his new book that includes the plays This Is My Office and Notes on My Mother's Decline. Andy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I, I thought as a first question I might ask, I I feel like sometimes I do this podcast just so that I can ask as many people as possible this question. And the question is, what was it like studying playwriting with Maria Irene Fornes?
0: That is a wonderful question. And uh, I had the privilege of having a number of really wonderful teachers. And Fornes, I first studied with down in Tosco, Mexico. Um, that was the first time I'd met her. And it was 1998. And that was pretty mind-blowing. She... Her energy is wonderful. Her challenges to you are wonderful. Um, I, she turns plays inside out in an amazing way. And that workshop was really special because both because she was teaching it because a lot of writers who I've, you know, remained very close to were at it too, including um, Ken Prestoninzi, Sarah Rule, Jorge Ignacio Cortinez, and Brooke Berman, among others. And we've all remained in our lives. Uh, I think subsequently I took uh, playwriting via the Women's Project with Fornes in New York. And she had some, along with her visualization exercises, she did a lot of fun things. Like she just loved the idea of play. We had um, a moment where we built a little box for ourselves, a little shoe box. I think I used an old box and sort of performed our plays with little... Figures doing a scene of our play, we're moving them around within that. So she was always thinking visually and creatively, and I found it really inspiring. Do you think visually when you write? I don't as much. I guess a little bit. I, I think I think mostly, I guess I, in terms of setting, I think a lot about where a play is set. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I've set that in place, sometimes I have it in maybe subconsciously in my brain and then I hear voices and what those voices are, but definitely, I mean, I think most of both of these plays were coming out of locations so that, um, but the plays that are in this book, but many other plays too, I've set plays on tennis courts, on public playgrounds. Um, so I guess I'm thinking visually in a sense of giving myself a landscape to work within, whether I'm specifically thinking about it in the moment of writing, it's still always there.
1: Yeah yeah that makes sense the the locations in these plays are are really um really very clearly a part of why they're plays in a way you know i mean i feel like any kind of the the first play is is essentially a one-person show um and the second one is like a two-person show and whenever you have something that's that minimal one of the questions is like why is this a play rather than you know like just a a a straight memoir and i feel like the setting is a lot of the reason for that that the fact that you're saying these words in places that are redolent of the locations you're talking about seem like a big part of that answer. Is that, is that part of how you'd answer that question?
0: Absolutely. And I think, especially with the first one, this is my office, um, that came very directly out of, cause that play plays with truth and fiction. But in terms of where it started, I had this residency with the lower Manhattan cultural council, and it was in this enormous floor through empty space. And as I was writing it, I would literally wander the space and write, imagine different sections set in different parts of it. So it was, in a way, written with this space that is now gone in mind. So I had a very physical sense of it. And of course, Notes of My Mother's Decline takes place um, pretty much in terms of this sort of central emotional space of it entirely in my late mother's bedroom. So that's another place I had very deeply. Inside me as I was
1: writing. Mm-hmm. Um, w- one of the things I love about this is my office um, is that it so captures a feeling I've always had whenever I've had an office job, which I, I currently do, which is um, that I'm kind of pretending to have an office job. And like I'm just sort of like going through the motions and like getting my little coffee and sending my little emails. And I, I always wonder, like, is there, do people who have done this for longer. Feel like they're actually doing an office job. Or does everybody feel like they're pretending? And I feel like that's part of what that plays about.
0: That's very interesting to me because I haven't had a lot of office jobs, but I certainly have. A, clearly, as I think is clear in the play, a, an emotional connection to offices from my father and having visited him at his office. Mm-hmm. But and I, you know, I've worked at various things that are similar to a, to offices, but I haven't really spent that much time in them to tell you the truth Mm -hmm. um and so yeah i mean there is something i do wonder and i was maybe wondering it in that space what do people do all day and is it so demanding at every given moment and what is downtime and not downtime and uh, it is confusing to me i mean working for myself i certainly waste as much time as anyone else but it's on me it's not on anyone else's time or dime
1: right and And when you're in an office, there's certain ways you can you're allowed to waste time and other w- ways you're not allowed to waste time. like you can you can scroll on Twitter for an hour, but if you like pulled out a book and read for an hour, that would be sort of unacceptable. i've I, I've always kind of wondered why those decisions get made the way they do.
0: That's quite interesting. and i and I realized I did. i I was a member of a place called the Writers' Room for a while. Oh, sure. a writers, and i I really love it there. But I did feel even though no one was enforcing anything, I, I did feel a certain obligation, maybe because of all the other writers tapping away in there to be focused and to not waste time. So there is a sense of also, I think it was also the experience of being in an office that was both a little bit social and not social. In other mm-hmm. words, we weren't really talking to each other, but we were all in the same space together. Maybe it's the odd fellowship of the office that that's interesting
1: to me too. There's also a great sort of, Rhapsody for the storeroom which you you write about being a very sort of attractive place to you as a child what do you think was so exciting to you about the office storeroom with all the paper and paper clips and binders and stuff
0: yeah I mean I think I remember having those materials around and I also ran a little home-based business uh, in my 20s this little travel business so I'd be always be ordering various supplies so I had a of relationship to these random supplies and binders, I, I guess I had a, maybe it was through my mother actually at her office that I would get access to certain things. She worked as a, a lecturer at Brute College, and I'd have access to various rubber bands there as much as anywhere. But yeah, those materials for a kid, and I, I see my own child, uh, when she has, gets into these things, they get kind of interesting to her, scissors and rubber bands and all of that. I don't know they hold a kind of mystique of some other life and maybe as a child you can imagine playing and being something through that
1: mm-hmm. i think one of the things about it for a child is that they're so similar to i mean in some ways they're the exact same as the things that you play with when you're like making crafts as a kid so you can sort of imagine oh like what i do at, at daycare with the scissors maybe that's what mom's doing all day at the office or dad's doing all day at the office So it maybe closes the distance between the office and the child's experience in some way?
0: Yeah, I I, I think it makes a lot of sense in the sense that we do want to understand in some way what our parents are and want to relate it to ourselves. And that weird, I think the plays are both very interested in perspective. In other words, if you're a small person and you're looking up at an adult, you don't really understand them, but you understand Mm -hmm. certain things very deeply and certain things are rather confusing. And that's sort of, I guess the idea visually for me is like reminding myself of what it was like to ride in an elevator when you were four feet tall and you were Mm -hmm. surrounded by all these people who were much bigger. In some sense, the perspective of the plays, especially when it's from the child's perspective, is coming from that.
1: Mm -hmm. These are both plays that deal with your own process of mourning. Um, This is my office kind of centers around your relationship with your father and notes on my mother's decline, obviously your mother. Um, how much distance in time did you have from their deaths before you started writing each of these plays?
0: Well, uh, different distances, in fact, um, this is my office. My father died in November 2007. And I believe I started writing some scenes of this is my office late in 2009 into 2010. So I had a couple of years there and it was still fresh in some ways, but it wasn't immediate. Mm-hmm. Um, and notice my mother's decline. I mean, I had a, I'd say a more complicated relationship with my mother in a sense. And her decline was my father was sick very briefly. Um, mm-hmm. And it was sort of shocking and sudden he passed away um, at 71, which is not, not young, but felt early to me. Um, my mother had a, a lengthy decline and my entry into Notes My Mother's Decline was I had um, I had seen This Is My Office produced in 2013 by the Play Company uh, in late 2013. And that December, I just started writing uh, a scene or two of Notes My Mother's Decline at the very beginning. I think I had... Um, um, my friend and a director I very much admire, Daniel Fish, had come to see um, this in my office and really liked it. And so in some ways, I wanted to write something with Daniel in mind, almost that question, what would Daniel Fish do? Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: so I Not I kinda, a bad question.
0: I think it's a great question. I think <laughs> great he's, question he, to
1: start a play for. Because he,
0: he's, he's a brilliant director and he questions everything. He takes nothing for granted. So I think as a writer, how do you, how do you enter and take nothing for granted in that way? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started that play, I started, knows my mother's decline, um, in, at the end of 2013, beginning of 2014, my mother was declining, but she was still very much a force. Um, and I wrote a lot of it and I didn't talk to her about it and her decline accelerated over those, those years. Mm. And she passed away in, I guess it was late 2017. And I had written most of the play or earlier version, but I couldn't end it. Um, right. And I actually wrote the last scene, the dialogue scene um, on a single, maybe in a, on a single sitting, um, maybe three months after um, she died in 2018. Cause I couldn't figure out the ending. I had other endings in mind. I probably had my own anger to reckon with and my own, I was in the middle of it in her decline and her caretaking So uh, I think I needed to have a softer ending and a more generous ending. um, And I couldn't have gotten there until after she died. Mm
1: -hmm. One difference uh, between the two plays that maybe comes through more reading them than it would seeing them staged is that the character in This Is My Office is named Andy Breakin. But the, the character in Notes on My Mother's Decline is named Son, um, why did you why did you make that choice? Why did you decide to explicitly name the, the character after yourself in the first play, and why did you not do that in the second one?
0: That's an interesting question. Um, I think that the the first one, um, the, the sort of non generous answer to myself was that it seemed clever, but I think it was more than that. Um, I think it was maybe it was because it was so specifically about that. Or something that it, it felt like I wanted to place myself in. I, I actually don't know the answer to that. Uh, hmm. For the second one, they just felt. Hmm. I won't I, Maybe it was from di- to give myself some distance from it. I'm not sure. Um, right. I mean, I that's really... why.
1: That's sort of why I asked the question, because I thought it was interesting that there's, I feel like so much less distance between you and your mother in Notes on My Mother's Decline than there is between you and your father in This Is My Office. So the decision to name the character in Notes on My Mother's Decline son does seem like a way to kind of put some distance there that's that's not there in the material. Um, I mean, I feel like the intuitive choice would be to switch them and to have son be the character in This Is My Office and Andy Bragan be the character in Notes on My Mother's Decline. So I was interested that you... You didn't do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that uh, I'm not even sure I thought about it. I think it was intuitive. I, I also think that um, the you know I don't even list characters in notes. My mother's decline for most of it, and mm-hmm. I think uh, Sarah Ruland, her forward was really smart about this and pointing out that the characters were so entwined that they didn't even get that sort of distance, mm-hmm. um, and whatever it was, I mean, when I started Notes, I started the first, the beginning of the play, I wrote a couple pages of dialogue. And then I realized, and it was partly related to the what would Daniel Fish do question, I removed all of the son's dialogue from that section. And I sort of found the style of what the play was Mm -hmm. through that, that a conventional dialogue actually weirdly felt less uh, intimate in some way than the one-sided part. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And, and that, that kind of one-sidedness of the mother character really does um, give you, it's almost like it, it bypasses sense, right? It bypasses like making these logical connections and you get such, such a sort of, strong dose of just her language and her character without it being in the context of, you know, pursuing an objective or something like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the power of that character um, for the sun and, and for me at various points was really serious and the dialogue, it, it would fall almost into bickering. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm being generous to sun, by not showing his moments of petulance. So I think they're implied in
1: mm-hmm. the
0: play. Um, yeah, there's something about trying to capture a person too. And I remember in some earlier writing, probably um, before I started that play, or maybe during it at some point, I started you know, trying to think about my mother and like writing just little snippets about each decade of her life, uh, mm-hmm. which had been an interesting life and thinking about what, what did that look like? And I don't know if that was just for my own interest or if I was thinking about a play, but just sort of looking at it, but just thinking about this journey of this person who, um, had grown up in Mississippi, had this really, uh, as I've learned more since, uh, uh, an accident from which she nearly died in 16 spent a, a year in, in traction in a hospital in a small town, Mississippi, and some part of her was always there. Mm. Um, and some part of her lived through language and lived through stories. And in that sense, giving her that language and that voice and that, you know, for better and for worse, that storytelling felt like a, both a, a sort of a capturing and hopefully a, a, a gift to some part of her.
1: Was her storytelling part of what inspired you to become a writer? I think so. Um, I had
0: a 35th birthday party at Kanji Village with a few of my friends that she wanted to host. And we were in one of those group uh rooms. And I think a friend of mine who hadn't known her before said, now I, you know, having met her, having seen her holding court at my birthday party, said, now I know where your plays come from and Mm -hmm. that voice. And she, uh, I think the way she spoke and the way she approached the world and the stories of our family, um, in some ways, that was uh, one of the great parts of her one of the good parts of her was her storytelling and her ability to, to share that and that's definitely something that I value and think about and is, is part of me yes
1: holding court is such an interesting phrase that you used there I would I would never describe my mother as holding court what, what was that what did that mean when she did that
0: well I think it just means that she would uh, Center things upon herself uh, which certainly was not something that was always pleasant to see as her son <laughs> mm-hmm. but um you know a cousin of mine used to call her the queen so she would hold court at various points she would hold court in her room in her bedroom and people would come in to talk with her and she would have her things she wanted to talk about so uh i mean holding court is problematic, because you're not always listening as well as you might to other people. Mm -hmm. um, Or you're doing it on your own terms. That's not all she did. But definitely, there was a kind of uh, ludicrous and yet true regalness to that,
1: uh,
0: which uh, always struck me and did not always make me feel very comfortable. But Mm -hmm. uh, it's something I can know was part
1: of her. Right. Right. And there's a, there's, I feel like regalness implies a certain sort of dignity and, and self-regard yeah. maybe for good and for bad.
0: Exactly. And uh, I think she did have a certain kind of dignity and some, some really good qualities in that regard. Uh, And the self-regard, I mean, to an extent, sure, I think so, but uh, definitely a, a strong personality, um, I guess I would say. And I've been writing, you know, I've been working on a book about family history. Um, i have sort of a checkered family history in that part of Mississippi there. And so I've been thinking about where she grew up and where she came from in terms of earlier generations. And it's, it's very interesting to see what all that means and where her values, the good ones and the not so good ones may have come from and the, the things she reckoned with in her past and her family and the things she didn't reckon with. So, um, it's been a big part of my writing life, a bigger thought part than I thought it would be. And I think with the years passing as difficult as my mother could be, I, I feel some generosity towards her and recognizing that what she grew up through was not easy.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, what you're describing reminds me a lot of Tennessee Williams' relationship with his mother.
0: Uh, Yeah, I think I know that that's uh, something my mother certainly had a (laughs) great admiration for Amanda and Blanche, in a way. Uh, Uh,
1: That's great. Yeah. Um, Did you ever consider playing the You character in either of these plays? A little bit. I mean, I...
0: um, I'm not that good. Uh, partly, um, I, I guess I read, I did an early reading. I did a little workshop for myself, reading notes with another actor. And I, I felt that I wasn't really there. And I think I heard that from the director, um, Mm -hmm. for notes, um, I mean, rather for this, my office, likewise, I read parts of it. I mean, I had the opportunity in our, we did a reading at McNally Jackson at South Street Seaport of excerpts uh, for the book launch. And Mm -hmm. I had a chance to read that last scene with Carolyn Lagerfeld um, who played um, um, mother in the production. And that was very moving to play this scene that I invented this kind of fantasy and to play it. So I think I was, Okay, at it, but to do that whole play seems rather daunting. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm married to an actor, and I, I've seen her work, and I know what it is, and I know the kind of listening and control of it. So I, I recognize that there are some real limitations to what I could do with. It. And I have so much admiration for the performers I've worked with, David Barlow and Ari Fliakos. Mm-hmm. and of course the many people who did workshops. They. They taught me so much, and they they brought so much to it, and they found uh, elements and colors that I could never have found. I think
1: I used to act a little bit, and I, I acted through college and haven't acted since then. Um, and the thing that I was worst at was just being present and paying attention in the moment. Like I would always sort of like <laughs> drift off in the scene and you know miss lines or stuff like that. What what do you feel like are your weaknesses as an actor?
0: Ah, That's a fun question. Uh, I feel like I have all these limbs and I don't always know what to do with them. Oh, yeah, Um, sure. So the the sort of physical body, I think um, what I think is talking in an interesting way, maybe talking too fast or without variety. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think there's a kind of emotional distance and listening is certainly part of it. Um, Yeah, there are just so many... I mean, there are a lot of bad actors out there, let's be clear, and there are a lot of good ones. But um, I do think a really good actor brings all of these elements that um, are really, that you can only get so far with through kind of natural um, sort of affiliation uh, with the part. I mean, there are those who would disagree. I mean, you could look at what Richard Maxwell's doing where he's using non-actors for parts and trying to sort of strip away. And there is a, a place for that. But I, I certainly felt for this first production, I wanted to see it with actors. And who knows, mm-hmm. maybe someday I'll have a chance to do it and I'll find out one way or the other. But uh, I just have a lot of respect for actors, especially parts like these that demand such emotional... Yeah. Um, that being able to move from one space to another, kind of the gymnastics of the plays are pretty significant. Mm-hmm.
1: And the second one in particular notes on my mother's decline is a really kind of bruising play. Like even just reading it, I was struck by how just visceral and intense and, and painful it was to read. And I, I could imagine performing that, you know, eight times a week when it's your life, is <laughs> maybe not the most attractive, uh, proposition.
0: Yeah, that doesn't sound very pleasant to me. And they were, and I, the intensity of what they had to put out there was pretty substantial in terms of the level of focus. And uh, Carolyn certainly playing the mom, it, it took a lot out of her. And mm-hmm. Ari being part of Worcester Group is used to some truly demanding, physically emotional, physical, emotional and mental work. And I think for him too, it was a challenge in some good ways.
1: Yeah. How often did you watch these plays when they were in production?
0: Quite a bit. Um, probably um, it was a short run for notes. So I was there as often as I could be. And for this is my office, um a fair amount too, maybe a little bit less. The thing is with plays, um you don't get that many productions really always, mm-hmm. or certainly you don't get that many productions that are the productions you choose and are the way you want them to be. And I was really pleased with you know, what we accomplished with them. These were the, the versions of the plays that I wanted to see. And that doesn't really happen all that often. So I really wanted to, to be there and enjoy it. And I think both of them had a weirdly cathartic, were weirdly cathartic for me um, in different ways. Uh, and in a way helped me get through some parts of mourning. Um, Mm -hmm. this is my office ends with, uh, kind of invitation to the audience. And we were serving donuts after every performance and chatting with the audience. And so that was rather wonderful to to share. It felt like a kind of wake. Um, and that was wonderful. And notes, in some ways it, it helped me pass through certain emotions I might not have passed through as well as I needed to beforehand to see it, and to let go of a lot of things.
1: I, I'm not like a, um, you know, doctrinaire Freudian or anything, but there is like a, a notion in, in Freud that I think is interesting, which is that part of what you need to do to kind of, to mourn properly is to channel the energy that you've invested into that relationship into some other thing, some other like, project or activity or something. And that, you know, bad morning happens when you just sort of bottle up that energy and, and continue trying to kind of make that connection with that person that's no longer there. Do you feel like that was part of what you were doing by writing these plays sort of channeling the, you know, complicated libidinal energies that you directed towards your parents into writing and producing and watching and, you know, publishing these plays?
0: I think that's probably true. I think that probably the, I would have perhaps uh, to continue on that, I would have sort of repressed or avoided some of the emotions. If I just said, oh, my mother's gone. Ooh, what a relief. I can get on with my life now. Um, That, you know, some, there've been some benefits to that, but it also would not have really been true because there's such a deep connection there. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think that to get in there allows me, it also allows me to sort of, Forgive her for some of her ways, and forgive myself for not being, uh, you know, as you know, as kind to her as I might have been along the way. So I think that part of it is to get beyond uh, the uh, the battles of life, and to accept that person who was part of your life and was imperfect, and that you were imperfect with them, and yeah, to be able to let go of that. So I think that, you know, that is right, fundamentally. Mm
1: -hmm. Were you able to have, I mean, I know there's the imagined conversation with your mother at the end of Notes on My Mother's Decline. Were you able to have any kind of a sort of, I don't know, reconciliation, kind of a summing up with her in real life at all?
0: I think in different ways we had different things, but... um, Not entirely. I I think that we had some uh, real run-ins and it was a really hard last few years. Um, And sometimes I was able to be there for her and we had some nice moments and sometimes um, we couldn't see each other. So I I think that um, we loved each other and we got on each other's nerves and I worked very hard to put up a lot of boundaries to protect my family and protect myself Um, there's no clean conversation where things came together Mm -hmm. and I don't know if I would exactly wish for that or think that's even possible. I mean, there's always unfinished business. There are always things that one would like to know, but I do know that I think she knew the fundamentals about, you know, that I loved her and I cared for my family and that we were, we were okay but of course along the way there were some real bumps
1: right the the voice of notes on my mother's decline is very different than the voice of this is my office like this is my office has a tone that i would describe as sort of like um sort of arch and and a bit kind of ironic and and kind of showman like you know there's a kind of like ha cha cha quality to it whereas Notes on My Mother's Decline is much more kind of spare and and poetic and kind of cut to the bone. How did you find the voice of, of each of these two plays?
0: Uh, I think that has to do partly with gr- changing as a writer, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, this Is My Office, I guess that was the tone I heard and maybe um, that was how I was thinking thinking about language and cleverness or something, Mm -hmm. I think I may be holding on to a little less with notes, my mother's decline. And the thing I want to get to is the core of it, the raw Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Um, And I think I've certainly, I love arch plays and I believe in it. And I think there's a lot of space for cleverness For, for that particular play. There just didn't, I think getting to the raw thing at base felt, Right, I'm sure there were some moments, I think in some earlier drafts, there were some moments of cleverness and, or moments of like commenting. And I tried to push away from that as I kept revising and cutting. Um, So if anything, uh, I mean, this is my office. I think as I say in the little intro is a kind of magic trick and there's a Mm -hmm. kind of... Fun to that of that memory um, notes is sort of is definitely as you say cutting to the bone and getting to something where this character's whatever this character is wrestling with I mean I wrote that also as a parent in my late 40s I mean the concerns of my late 30s was my late 40s maybe feel different I'm not sure
1: yeah there's a there's a line in this is my office where the character says something like you know, why am I a playwright? Well, you know, I'm 40 and I'm still a playwright and I might as well keep going now. <laughs> that that sort of feels like that's maybe enough of a motivation to keep going at that age. But at a certain point, I mean, this is something Vaslav Havel talked about, that like you have your first kind of wave of inspiration as a young writer and like it's going to run out eventually and you either stop writing or you find another reason to write. Do you feel like you've gone through a similar process? I
0: think I've had to let go of
1: certain things. Um, I mean, you have two different parts to that. You
0: have the artistic question and the career question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on the career question, I came out of graduate school, and this is my office, carries some of that energy still with a great deal of ambition and some sense that I should be getting somewhere, doing something in this world that people were going to give me things. Uh, and of course, life doesn't work like that, nor should it. Um, and I had to come to terms with sort of a certain kind of success, I guess, or lack of success in the Mm -hmm. sense, certain things didn't happen for me and certain things did. But ultimately I found, I got, I think I got past that and said, I'm writing because I care about writing about what I care about. I'm not going to rely on what's coming from the outside here. I'm going to do my best not to. And just, I love writing. I love telling stories in the theater. I love making plays and I love doing this. And some of it's very personal and some of it's less personal. And this is what I do. So in a way, and and it's very hard to get a play done. It's hard to know when the next play will be done, but I'm still doing it because I love it, I think. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. I got a rejection email from a publisher this week where they were like, you know, we like the play, but it's only had one production. Is there going to be a second production? We might we might publish it if there's a second production and it was sort of like, do do you realize how hard it is to get one like self-produced dinky little production? Like it just seemed like such a cruel question, you know?
0: Yeah, it is. It's, a, it's, a, it's very hard. And I think people are finding ways to work in and out of institutions, but it, it does demand a lot. And to, to uh, find a way to do it on the, the terms that you want to do it um, is important, I think. Um, and so, yeah, um, we try to find our way forward. But I think uh, artistically, sort of trying to whether or not a play is emotionally cutting to the bone with one's mother, there's certainly so many ways to, to get at things that seem important to oneself. And I, and that, some, that can be comedy. That can be whatever, whatever it is that feels like the thing that you're doing and, and protein with great integrity, I think. And that, that feels like a way forward at least.
1: Um, this is like more of a personal question than like an interview question, I guess. But like, how do you, how did you, I don't know, did you feel like you've done that? And and if so, how do you do it? And if only partially, how did you partially do it? Like, how do you, how do you actually make that switch to be, to being somebody who writes what you find interesting rather than somebody who's trying to, you know, have a play on on Broadway or at Roundabout or whatever?
0: You know, I, I continue to work on it and I definitely had some um, moments earlier on where I put on a play and I would think it would lead to certain things and it, it might not. Um, I think it was just a gradual experience of trying to let go and I, I'm i not perfect at it and I certainly have desires and ambitions like, like everyone else, but um, I feel as if it just made me unhappy to really always be thinking about the next thing uh, mm. in terms of what someone's gonna do for me. Um, and I've seen it make some other people I know unhappy, and it certainly was not great for you know my personal life either to carry that kind of uh, energy with me. So I just think about the moments that I'm really enjoying making theater. Um, mm. And also knowing that some writers I really respect who also are, you know, struggling but doing it for really pure reasons. And maybe struggling is not the right word because they're just writing and they're writing beautiful plays. I'm in a writer's group and one of the writers was writing a a play and he's a writer who's been done, uh, you know, across the country off Broadway. And it was this big play. And he's like, you know, no one's going to do this play right now. But I'm writing it for you, for this group. And this was during COVID. So we're re- meeting on Zoom every week. And he would read, we would read these 20 beautiful pages. And I was deeply inspired by that. The, and that idea, I think, that uh, you know, Lewis Hyde talks about in The Gift. I know Sarah Rules referred to it a lot uh, at various points this idea of writing a play as a, as a gift for someone, um, as opposed to saying, this is a transaction I need to get value from. I want mm-hmm. to write this as a gift, and it's something that can be shared. So, um, of course, we all want to share our work. We want to see it on the stage, and that's something I continue to fight for. But the the reward of something, uh, you know, external, while I would want it, I can't. I can't center my life on it.
1: Yeah um that yeah it's like that's a great answer yeah um i want to know so these plays are both in different ways but but i would say both are just I- incredibly personal plays and divulge a lot of painful factual or you know presumably factual information about you and your parents and your relationship to your parents and things that happened to them and you know the way you grew up and and um, And I'm not, I'm not that kind of writer at all. Uh, I don't, I don't write about myself. I'm like not interested in myself. Um, So I wonder just like, was that hard for you uh, to, to expose yourself so directly in front of a bunch of strangers by writing these plays?
0: It didn't feel that hard, I guess. Um, And I hadn't done that with many plays before that, at least not directly, I don't think um i mean there are things that i in a way you can't tell people what's true and what's not true and it doesn't really matter um Mm -hmm. some fundamentals are true um and even if some facts are not um
1: and, and and I should say like in this is my office there's stuff that clearly didn't happen because it's sort of like absurd you know like there's like you you start sleeping in the in the office that you've been given at this residency which I assume you didn't actually do and you know so I feel like you do find ways within these plays to kind of landmark this is made up this is maybe true so yeah
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think with this, my office, I did sort of lean into a a slightly more sad sack version of myself uh, (laughs) at that point. Um, And that was, you know, that was for dramatic interest. Um, No, I feel okay with that. I mean, I feel that, you know, looking at different kinds of art, there are many different ways that people expose themselves and we're always engaging as writers, I think with our, our fantasies and our nightmares and there are just different ways that we engage with it or disguise with it. In some ways, maybe my choice here is to kind of hide in plain sight. And other writers have other methods for engaging with things they care about.
1: Um, could I ask you what you're working on these days or you know, if you're working on anything these days? Sure. I'm working uh, on a couple things.
0: Um, I have a play called To the Playground which is about adults on the playground and their uh, sort of combination of obsessions with the banal and the existential, uh, sort of a combination of you know concerns with, uh, be it potty training or global climate change or whatever, and how those things kind of end up at the same register. So that that's a play I've worked on some. Um, and I'm working on this uh, book, um, uh, as I mentioned briefly about my uh, extended family uh from mississippi my mother's side of the family made me live up my father's side Uh, four generations ago my great great grandfather my mother's side uh was an enslaver who fought at gettysburg and was in the confederate state legislature and uh, i have some diaries i have some wills i have a lot of material from back then and a lot of research i've been doing to sort of look at the sort of how the past and the present Connects, And I'm a native New Yorker, so I have a, a great deal of distance from Mississippi. Um, and yet I'm looking at, you know, how they were back then, how I am in my own life. So it's a pretty, I guess it's a kind of memoir slash nonfiction. Maybe I'll write a play eventually from it, but right now I'm I'm trying to write a book.
1: Great. I'd like to ask you too, you mentioned being a parent and, and it sounds like that's something that you're looking at in your current writing do you feel like there are things that you do as a parent that you've either consciously or unconsciously taken from how your parents acted towards you
0: uh yes for sure um i think uh there are some great things my parents did and some not so great things but um I certainly uh, am aware of the freedom I had as a kid. And that was part of the 1970s where I was able to sort of walk to school by myself starting at age eight. That's important to me to give my kid a certain amount of freedom. She's not wanting to take as much of it just yet, but she's taking parts of it. Um, No, I think that one thing that my family always did was value books and reading. And that's something that my mother gave me and my father gave me so i think both you know via example because my wife and i read all the time and also because we're engaged with stories um with our daughter in deep ways both reading to her and just talking about them because she reads to her herself mostly now um those values that sort of intellectual the value of creativity and intellect and, and all of that is, is really central and i think my um parents where they hear would recognize and appreciate that.
1: Well, Andy Bragan, thanks so much for being on New Books in Performing Arts to talk about your new book. I really enjoyed reading these two plays and I really enjoyed getting to talk with you about them.
0: Thank you, Andy. It was a real pleasure. Have a wonderful day.